0: Good morning hey so office here if you're visiting not the regular guy just so you know all right let's open the word father we thank you for this time turn to your word let may pray father that you take the truth of your word today point out things in our lives that need to be changed and be a work in our hearts to do Jesus name amen So we're going to talk this morning about the Pharisee and the publican. We to turn to the book of Luke. to do that. Chapter 18. I have to confess that the book of Luke is probably my favorite. It is my favorite gospel. It's probably my most favorite book in the whole Bible as I do with the way Luke writes. The way he puts things together. What we're going to be looking at today is we're going to summarize sort of the way the contrasts are between Pharisees and the publicans and also between righteous, righteousness and self-righteousness and those differences and how, you know, how we find the book contrast. I think you're going to find some of this, at least I find it pretty interesting, as I do with everything in the Scripture, right? There's always some new thing that God seems to have every time you open this book. I don't know what it is with the first two rows here, but there's not one person in the first two rows, so a little odd from my bearing, it's a little strange. So, anyhow, <clears throat> excuse me. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. It's gonna read from 9 to 14. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, vultures, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself be exalted. So the first thing I want to look at is what's the greater context here? So what is Jesus explaining this parable? What's his point? What's he trying to do? Well, he's responding to the Pharisees question. If you look back in chapter 17, just a page back in verse 20, says this. It says, now he, Jesus, was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed. So that's the question Jesus is responding to now in these upcoming verses. So Jesus responds to the question by telling the Pharisees that the kingdom is spiritual. in This context right here. He rules in the hearts of men today. In other words, he's telling them that they can't see it right now. The king himself was right in front of them. Yet they, their hardened hearts refused to see it. Greek word rendered observed here is actually translated, careful observation. You can stare at Jesus all day long and look all around him for his kingdom, but you'll never see it. It's in the hearts of men. You can see its results and how it manifests itself in the lives of those who belong to him. You can see it in their changed lives. That's where the kingdom is visible. A physical eternal kingdom will come along after the 1000 year kingdom the new heavens and the new earth are established with the new Jerusalem, its capital. Redeemed of all the ages, be part of that eternal visual kingdom, physical kingdom. So if the physical kingdom will follow a spiritual kingdom, which is what Jesus is saying here, then it becomes obvious that one must enter the spiritual kingdom to be first before he can be part of that physical kingdom that comes. Now he does this, now how does one enter this spiritual kingdom? Back to the question from the Pharisees. They knew the kingdom was coming. They wanted to be part of it. They thought they had a way in, so they asked Jesus this question, when is the kingdom coming? So you can see it, if you can't see it, rather, by careful observation, then how does one enter it? So if you can see it, just like get, just be in the kingdom, or maybe perform some ritual to get in, maybe do some works of righteousness, Maybe it's St. Peter at the Gates with a bunch of questions you had to answer. You get them right, you get in. That's not the case at all. So in chapter 17, Jesus goes on to tell them, assuming verses, that they were that there was that they were not to go after those who tried to mislead him. mislead them by saying the king, the kingdom was coming, see the kingdom coming. He says that he has to suffer these things and he must be rejected, that powerful events will occur prior to his return where he would establish his physical eternal kingdom. So this is pretty weighty stuff as Jesus starts this, leading up to two parables about prayer, right? Why would he talk about these things? Well, now Jesus begins in chapter 18 to tell them how to get into the kingdom. Prayer becomes the top, but why prayer? Well, he told them at the end of chapter 17 how difficult it was at times, the times would be before he would come back to earth again before he would return. 1726, he likens those days to the time of Noah, when only eight people on the whole earth were saved. Perilous times were coming, that was an understatement. So as we'll see, these parables are really about salvation. As usual, Jesus talks about what he wants to talk about. He answers the Pharisees' question, but with the answer that they need to hear, not necessarily what they expect to hear. He starts it out and says, now he was telling him a parable to show that at all times one ought to pray, not become discouraged. So in 18:1 he illustrates his point with a parable of the unjust judge. Now we're not taking time to look at that closely today about this unjust judge, but it's one of those misunderstood parables. It's a parable of contrasts, not a parable of comparisons. God is good and gracious, not like the judge we have in that one, that parable. And we're not like the widow who just pesters a judge until he gives us what he wants. God is the opposite. We are his chosen sons and daughters. God can't be coerced into answering prayers. Look back at 18.1. The parable shows us, and it says his disciples, that we should pray regularly, not give up. He wants sincerity in our prayers, not repetition, formulas. So back to the Pharisee's question, when is the kingdom come? Well, Jesus says, that they were looking with their eyes to see something. A way to enter that kingdom in a physical sense. Jesus says that one needs to enter the spiritual kingdom to become part of the kingdom that they were seeking. So that one is where God is king and all unrighteousness is removed. It's important what Jesus is gonna talk about soon. So he says that there are times that will be increasingly difficult and they will need to pray, but be promised the eternal kingdom is coming. If they want to be part of it, their works righteousness won't pick them in. I'll talk a little bit about the Pharisees, the way it works. I know you'll have an idea how Pharisees were. They kind of go boo if you have a chance to say the Pharisees. And by the way, I have a tendency to go fast in mine so Lord is here, my wife is here, and she didn't move easy. So and I said that this morning, and it wasn't here in the early service and Trudy sure was, and truly said no, and she goes. If I started rambling a little quick, I can look at the clock, especially that clock says 10 minutes the one. So you're, we're already over time, so anyhow. So much for that. In now if I run over, it's my own fault because I just went through whatever. So who were the Pharisees? Well, <clears throat> they were not like, they were not political like the Sadducees and the Zealots. They weren't mystics like the Essenes. They weren't priests either, and they weren't really either wealthy or Jews. They were mostly laymen and well-respected by the populace in the first century. Jewish historian Josephus records us about 6,000 of these guys during the reign of Herod the Great. So there was quite a few of them around, they were pretty obvious. Pharisees knew that God is holy and people are not. It's all throughout the Old Testament. They were students in the Old Testament. Psalm 143.2 says, "'For no person living is righteous in your sight.'" We think it's 1144. "'For I am the Lord your God, "'consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, "'because I am holy.'" They needed consecration because they were unrighteous before God, sinful. So the Pharisees saw it as strictly from the the external standpoint. They lived apart from the rest of the Jewish culture at the time. They they were a strict religious sect that came out after the exile. The exiles returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. They separated themselves from paganism and adhered to Old Testament law. So by anyone's standards, Pharisees were successful showing these outward signs of holiness. Pretty good at it. God commanded all men to be holy, perfectly holy, all the time. God had a standard that no one can live up to perfectly. Now we know that So we can listen to Andy Colossum chapter 20 Exodus and we know that is a perfect standard nobody can live up to. But if he commands something to be done, he says be holy for I am holy, then he's got to provide a way for us Behold. So Genesis 15:6 it's kind of where, not where it began, but that's where we can see it plainly. It's recorded about Abraham. It says, then he believed the Lord, and it was credited him his righteousness. So the word credited here can also be translated as imputed. In other words, Abraham was justified by this faith. His faith would be the vehicle God used to impute God, his perfect righteousness to him. So the Pharisees could only recognize the externals of holiness they couldn't see what was really behind them. They embodied the visual of walking. But they missed the real idea of holiness. So then what is true biblical holiness, righteousness? And how does one obtain it? So even the Pharisees knew that men would fail to keep the law, and they needed a means to atone for their sin. The wrath of God on sin was coming unless he provided a pathway for righteousness and forgiveness, there's no way to get it. The Pharisees knew the scriptures about the coming Messiah, too. Isaiah 53 11 says, My servant will justify many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. They knew the Messiah would be the sin bearer, at least they could read it, and see it. For the Messiah will bear the sin of the believer, make them just not. However, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the religious people had forgotten what the sacrificial system was all about. God expects perfect holiness for one to see his kingdom. They have a right relationship with him. Again, they all kept seeing the externals, going through emotions. Sacrificial system only covered their sin. It didn't remove them. That would have to take place in order for them to enter into a relationship and become acceptable. No. So how can a simple person become such a barrier? How can anyone be holy? How can a sinful person at all overcome such a barrier? So what the Old Testament predicted Messiah, did, he would be able to participate in that earthly kingdom. Who could do that? Who qualifies? And may you guys ask great questions. Because I'm used to teaching Sunday school, and usually people are asking questions, so I'm just asking a question. And so anyway, so at that point, as Andy often says, that's the introduction. So kind of know where we're going. So take a look now at chapter 18, verse 9. So Jesus begins this parable on how a man can be righteous before God, what justification is all about. He does that by using this illustration of two men coming up to pray into the temple. So in 18.9 it says, Now he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed contempt. So he says he also told this parable. Also obviously means there's another parable here. So we don't want to ignore So this is connected to the parable on prayer that Jesus had just told, see that would be a righteous judge. It's pre this this chapter 18. This story or parable on the surface is about prayer also, but that's all we see, and we'll miss what the Lord was teaching them while answering that question again from chapter 17, concerning the coming kingdoms, that's what he's talking about. But who's he speaking to here? Says some people who trusted in themselves that were righteous was the self-righteous crowd. That's who he's addressing. And he also, he says that he viewed others with contempt. I'll well, keep in mind that he's speaking directly to the self-righteous crowd. Remember who asked that question back in 1720, right? The Pharisees. He's directing this right directly at them, the self-righteous guys. It's really a very pointed sermon illustration. He's really being confrontated. That's really what the gospel is all about. It attacks the sinner at its core, right to the main issue. Who do you trust for your salvation or your justification? Who are you trusting? So what is self-righteousness then? Those who justify themselves as being right with God, they made the decision they're right with God. Luke 16, 14, and 15 should look clear Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, listening to all these things were ridiculing Jesus, and he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in sight of people, but God knows your hearts, because that which is highly esteemed among people is detestable in sight of God. So, one writer I read describes this as the early version of the self-esteem movement. People see them there as living this kind of life that pleases God, based on what they do, not on who they are. However, God sees us who we are. I don't just know that. Jesus told them that God knew their hearts. He knows ours. What does Jesus say about their high view of themselves? Well, he says it is the sight of God. So in 1890, he goes on to say that they trusted in themselves, all well, their measurement for spirituality, ultimately their relationship with God, with God, was based on how they saw themselves, not how God saw them. Remember that these guys were the ones that were, that the religious Jews of the day thought to be really spiritual, spiritually elite. These were the top guys, the clergy, if you will. So why would self-righteousness, self-righteous people, few others, contempt? Why would that be the case? Well, the verb, con- verb contempt there means to despise someone because they see you as having no value. The only other place it's used in the Gospels is Luke 23, 11. Herod, together with the soldiers, treated him, Jesus, with contempt, mocked him, dressing him in a brightly, brightly shining, and sent him back to Pilate. So they saw Jesus as being worthless. That's what people are self righteous do. They to see others having no value. It's really the inevitable outcome of self righteousness. If someone doesn't live up to your standard of righteousness that you think you've attained, then you, then you will see them being inferior and you'll view them content. I guess you could see this same as a set of pride. In views, Use other use other people as spiritual amateurs, but beneath you to possess all the right qualities you see in yourself, then a righteous God is not see Because it's not there. 1810 says the two men went up to the temple to bring one a Pharisee and the tax collector. So he starts these two guys off on equal footing. They both had the same intention. What's that? Went to the temple too? Right. You have to answer because that's, that's the answer in the will just Really, remarkable. So anyway, we think that this expression "prayer" is a private time to commune with God. Well, the Jews at the time would have seen a dual meaning here. Yeah, private devotion, but they also see worship in a public way. In order to worship, atonement would have to take place. Sacrifice would have to occur. One would have to be right with God before worship and then prayer could take place. For the Jews it was twice a day, times the morning and evening offerings, morning and evening sacrifice. So offerings would take place, sacrifice would take place, and they would go up to the temple to pray. It's a thing. So the Pharisees were the spiritual say, and emphasized meticulous observance of the law. So they took the law of Moses, the written law of Moses, given by God, and then added their traditions. What people could see, they were the super spiritual, they were respected to a certain extent. So now we have a handle on who Pharisees are. Who were the publicans? Well, who are these tax collectors, guys? Who were they? If you're a homeowner, let's see if throw that in there. You probably write a check at least once a year that, that person is taxable. Maybe reluctantly, but you don't see that person that you're writing the check in a bad way. In, ours, in our town, we actually write the person's name in Shears, like we're only doing a job that they're likely to do. So the town that we live in, Lexus receiver of taxes for five return. They actually have to campaign for job. So campaigns mean people, not only have to see who's qualified, they all I like, hey, guess who wants to look there? They see who's qualified, but they also have to see your personality. Your personality plays a big part. You at least have to be likable to be a tax collector, of not so in the Romans. And some of you are laughing now because you're thinking about these tax collectors, these guys. The tax collectors were those who collected revenue for the Romans. They were hated by the Jews. Let's face it, nobody likes to pay taxes, especially with the regime that hates them. These tax collectors were Jews. They were seen by other Jews as being disloyal to Israel. They were known for keeping some of the taxes collected for themselves. That's how many of them became rich. Consequently, only those who were scoundrels, that's the word that the scoundrel point. Be drawn to this particular job, something like six times in the gospels, tax collectors are connected to sinners, and once in Matthew 12, it's connected to prostitutes. So Jesus used this common view of tax collectors to show how to treat those who refuse church discipline. So Jesus himself didn't realize the view of the tax collector. Matthew 18, 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church and if you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and day tax collector right no, no, no. So not the Pharisees were respected but the tax collectors were rejected. So there was not a famous tax gatherer. So I already asked a couple of famous tax gatherers. I were to ask you who they were you would name who? Matthew and yeah. Zacchaeus, Very good. okay interestingly, Every time Luke mentions tax collectors, he mentions them in a positive light. Stay with me on this, but I want to show you a couple of these places. And they're right here in the book of Luke. So you can kind of flip them around or just listen. In chapter 3 of Luke, verse 12, these tax collectors actually seek God. It says this, Some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Jesus, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you've been ordered to was collecting taxes, frankly, it was not a crime, and it wasn't even morally wrong. But to take advantage of their position to cheat people is where Jesus told them to repent. So why? He had crossed, them, but they saw them They'd come to be baptized. Chapter 5, verse 27, he calls Matthew mentioned, follow. Says after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax book. And he said to him, Follow me and he left everything behind, and he got up and began to follow. Now what's interesting too about Matthew, which you really got to notice too, is that Matthew knew the cost. He left this lucrative position, and he was making money and gave up everything just to be in the disciple. Chapter seven, verse 29. All the people and the tax collectors heard this, referring back to who the least in the kingdom would be greater than John the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Notice how they're contrasted with the Pharisees in the very next verse. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. These men rejected repentance. They knew it was good, but they just said, we're not doing it. They couldn't see themselves as sinners. They were not like the rabbit, not like the commoners. Chapter 15. Verse one says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Again, the contrast with the Pharisees in the next verse. Both Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, the Pharisees see Jesus as being guilty by association, just like the tax collectors. They show their contempt for the Son of God. Again, now over chapter 19, verse two, we have Zacchaeus. And there was a rich man, Excuse me, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now he's seeking Jesus, and then Jesus calls him, just like he did with Matthew. So again, we have all this stuff where, he sh- where these tax collectors, who are hated by the Jews and despised even by the Pharisees, that we have in positive light, or over again. Now, the thing is, is that Jesus had an uncommon love, a unique love for him. He always reached out to the Drake society in general, specifically to these guys, those folks that were rejected by multitudes, particularly these that were cast aside by the religious folks, Pharisees. So back to our text, in 1811. The Pharisee stood and began praying, he came, began praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooked, Adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So it stood, it says the Pharisees, Well, that's nothing wrong with that, at least on the surface. Plenty of times we see people in the Bible standing to pray. So, like so many other things, praying it can get corrupted. Jesus warned against the attitude of prayer, not the physical position of prayer. He said this He said, and when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street on the corners, so they will be seen by people. Truly I say to you, they'd have their reward. Oh, so it's Wiersbe puts it like this. Pharisees used prayer as a means of getting public recognition, not as a spiritual exercise to glorify God. He was deluded about himself, for he thought he could be accepted by God because of what he did and what he did not do. So, it's, again, it's purely the externals. So, rule keeping, was his justification before God. So, what we know about the Pharisees is likely this guy here standing in a place of prominence in the temple. You might get that from verse 13 when the text went was, was some distance away. Goes on to say, praying in regard to himself. I mean, that's quite a statement, praying to himself. So, who's the son be praying Certainly praying to himself, but to others who might have been standing around. Now, it could be said that he was praying silently. People cut him with slack there, but not, not, not out loud, speaking within himself, sort of like Hannah did in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you remember. But it's not likely, because he's about to use the word I five times expressed in that prayer. So, he goes on to say God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, crooked falters, or even like this tax collector. So his prayer begins by addressing God, that's a good thing, too. So, he gives thanks. Another good thing. But now he tells God that he appreciates that he's not like everybody else. I'm good enough. to live up to your standards. I'm not like other people. And this is where self-righteousness gets to eventually. It always does. He's telling God that he's not like the people on this list of bad guys. Those in the temple who might here will be impressed. He even concludes this thing with part of jab against the sand, this tax point that He points out another person who was right there in the temple praying by him. Right near He says, see that guy over there? I'm not like that guy. I'm a lot, I'm a much better Jew than that tax collector." So he's comparing himself. He's comparing ourselves to others. I, mean, I know that we don't do that much, but it does happen. Comparing ourselves to others is the jealousy. We begin to see something in others that we want for ourselves. We covet what they have. It's not ours, but if we had it, we'd be a better steward of For all of those in our possession, we own it. We'd be able to handle it a lot better. Now, my wife, Olga, has uh, created this little tradition, for our grandchildren. She started when the first one was in bed well and smoke uh, them. She started this little thing where she would say to the kids, I have a surprise for you, which is a gift. It was a gift for like life, to some. She could give them, bring a little joy into their lives. You're hopeful. So and just to give a little bit more background, uh, it's Ukrainian. kids call her Baba, which is, doing the church. They call her Baba, which means Grandma Ukrainian. So Olga brought in gift. Now, when you do this kind of thing together, yeah, remember, this is not what you're supposed to remember when we we'll finished the day. You say, oh, I remember that. That's in trouble with sight. And stuff and Jesus says, oh, hey Ben, I have a surprise for you. And she hands him this. should a back. She not remember this. the clock. I don't know what the clock deal is. I think somebody can tell me later. But anyway, so he gives him this back. So he opens it up. He takes a look at it. He says, Baba, you gave me the wrong surprise. So he didn't want it at the time. But every time he came to the house in the ensuing years, you know, he might not he's, he's 23. I don't think he's ever come this time. But, they, but he would come to the house for years on After afternoon and play with it every time he comes. Now our youngest, 10-year-old grandson plays with this thing, and the four girls in between, they all play with it as well. So he didn't think it was the right surprise at first, but it turned out once he used it, it was a pretty good surprise after all. Anyways, isn't that really what we're like? Are we really any different? telling God that he didn't give us the right gift, maybe the right talents. He wants something more useful for him, something more special, something that gets some a little more attention. Well, what's the cure for that? It's basically, that's jealousy, right? What's the cure for that's content? Paul gives us an idea in Philippians of his personal solution to that contentment. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, I also not a prosperity. level. now you'll never get to a point of contentment in your own death. So If you wire things, I'm going to be content today. Now, contentment is a gift from God. There's no way you can do that. You realize that only when you're totally, when you're totally yielding to God's purposes in your life, if you're doing what God wants you, do, you will be content. Comparing ourselves to ourselves excuse me, comparing ourselves to others is the jealousy and also being disappointed to try and feeling of superiority. Paul also addresses this problem as well, in 2.12. He says, not that I have already obtained it, I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which I was labeled, oh, Christ Jesus. So there's three quick ways right here on solving that problem. First, he says he's not become perfect. He hasn't arrived yet. He hasn't gotten it all together. Second, he was working on his own life where he needed to change. He would press on and make every obedient, every opportunity he could take obedient to the Lord. Thirdly, Jesus laid hold, and he grabbed the hold of him, and would use him as long as his life was yielded to his will. So another danger in comparing ourselves with others is the idea that our salvation is determined by how worthy we are. We have reason to see ourselves as more worthy of God's favor than someone else. Now we might not come around and say it like that. We can fall into the trap of thinking we're somehow more useful for God because of our abilities and our talents. Warning James gives in James chapter 2, verse one, is my brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. God's chosen us but it has nothing to do with anything that you have to offer. Self-esteem, right out of the window. Nothing special in yourself. Your identity is in what Christ has done for you, not what you've done for him. It's 5.8, but God, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ. Right, God's very good. So he did it all. We were all of no account. We were worthless, useless, and he gave his life Venus. The trap of comparisons is comparing ourselves to ourselves. Now, there's times that's not a bad idea, touch sure them too. But you don't want to get into the mode where you say, well, I'm doing better than I was when I got started. Back when I first became a Christian, I did this or that. At least I don't do that anymore. Well, I think we'd all agree that's a pretty So, where is the growth where Is where's it? Where is the growth is what are you doing with the challenges that you face today? And if you don't think the challenges are greater today, they were when you first came to Christ, yourself to see. The temptations get greater the longer you follow. So, is there a time to compare yourself with yourself? Oh, well, again, Apostle Paul says that, so, like the book of Philippians, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So Paul says this, it's all about attitude. We are to give careful consideration to what's being said. Then he says, we're to keep living up to the standard that we have already attained. In other words, he gives the reader a warning here. Reach the point in your spiritual life that God has empowered you to attain. Remember where you've come from and be encouraged by that growth, but don't rest on the laurels. This is no time to stop. Paul exhorts the Philippians right in the prior verse I press on toward the goal of the prize, the yep, upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It says to press on or continue to be faithful. Stephen Cole put it like this he said, Paul had a holy dissatisfaction where he was at. So he kept pressing on. Yesterday's blessings and experiences won't do for today. He walked daily with the Lord, always wanting more, always learning, always growing, never treading order or coasting. So remember, it's not all your, it's not all God's. Doing. It's neither, it's not either or, it's both and. The Spirit of God empowers you to act, God gives you the power, but you have to take that power to use. God gives you the strength to grow and the knowledge of Him to obey. But we have to put that power into our spiritual life. Spiritual wealth, like anything else that's worth anything in life, It's hard work. The rewards are far greater than anything you could imagine. So the Pharisee goes on, moves on to what he's not like, to what he is like. He now reminds God of what a godly person. is. Not only is he moral, he says, what I'm religious too. He says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes. And what I get? Again, there's nothing wrong with me fasting or tithing. What's wrong here? Well, the context of how the Pharisees' heart went to it, which one of pride, and self-righteousness, it wasn't uncommon for Jews to fast twice a week, usually Monday and Thursday. That was was not wasn't coincidental. Those are the days of the market, it's in Jerusalem. So those who wanted to display the piety would show up looking disheveled, so others would see it they it fasting. So Jesus took note of this, addressed the practice in Matthew chapter 6 verse 17 says, but as for you, you fast. Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting will not be noticed in you. It's your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will be you. If you do some fasting, I'm sure you wash your face and all that kind of stuff. It's like, wow. But you tell everybody you know, hey, by the way, I'm fasting. It's kind of the same thing. So tithing it so also was a given expression of faith as well as fasting. The Jews actually gave around thirty percent total, and God owns the tithes. The first ten percent belongs to Him. But I consider using that part of one's income for anything other than Him is theft. It says that in Malachi two eight. If anyone robbed God, yet you are robbing me. Jews say, "Have oh, we robbed you? You robbed me in tithes and offerings. It's His money. So of course the Pharisees took it to the full extent. Even tithe dill and cumin spices. He wanted them to see that they were going farther than God required, prove their worthiness to God. So Jesus addressed their hearts, attitude, and tithing. As you recall, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law—justice, mercy, faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus didn't tell them not to the tithe. He didn't tell him he law. Really the emphasis was on the more important part. The visions of the law about doing right, even-handed application of law, justice, and the hard issues of mercy and faithfulness. So now for our tax collector, 1813. But, great transition right there. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but beating his chest saying, "'God, be merciful to me, sinner.'" What was the big difference, the way the tax collector approached God? Both went up and pray. Pharisee was all about himself, right? All about the Pharisee, all about himself. The tax collector, it's all about God, God's mercy. He has nothing, himself realizes that. All the Pharisee's flowery prayers to impress God and others. But the tax collector realizes who he is, and his standing before the so, for those of you who say, I've heard time to time, there's no sinner's prayer in the Well, There it is right there. That would be the sinner's prayer. And I kind of wish someone had made that clear to me when I first became a Christian. Because, you know, you don't want to, there's nothing wrong with a form prayer to help someone along, especially if you're dealing with children. Nothing wrong with a form of prayer to help them along, give them an idea. Of the but what we teach people, and we disciple them for years, and say, look back at that prayer. That's where you can look at that. That's where your salvation hangs. That's where we do them in this service, especially if someone's having doubts. So don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with, you know, helping someone along with a prayer, helping them get the idea of what it means, how to confess their sinfulness before the Savior. But we enforce that by helping them pay it, by helping them understand, pay the price for the sin. They have a sin nature. The only remedy is Christ. Jesus paid the all, all the enemy. Very minutes, very minimum, what we can do response to that is obedience to God. So most likely, that's not the time for this theological explanation of how the spirit, power we would do those things. But repentance is part of the old, from the old life, is part of the old. No changed life, no salvation. That's what true assurance of salvation can be seen and felt by like the God doing the work to change your life. It's true, and true. So let's take a look at the text. Line. It says he was unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven. Unwilling. He doesn't compare himself to others like Pharisee. Instead, he compares himself to God's own standing. He can't even look up toward heaven. Remember how Peter reacted when Jesus told him to put his nets down again after fishing all night and catching nothing in Luke 5? Pull all He When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a It's so all you compare yourself. And Victor Hugo's hunchback at Notre Dame Quasimodo meets Esmeralda. It sees your beauty and realizes its own holiness. It's only the stark contrast that causes him to see the truth. The more we understand the holiness of God, the more we see ourselves as the wretched sinners that we says he was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, and the sinner. He knew who he was. He knew that he had no righteousness of his own. All he could do was throw himself in the mercy of God. He was hitting his own heart, symbolically to show how corrupt he really was. The heart is the seat of the emotions, and the intentions of the man. Jesus said, for out of the heart evil thoughts, murders, acts of adultery, other immoral sexual acts, thefts, false testaments, and slanderous statements, these things are the things that defile a person. So he pleads for God's mercy. Why? Because he knows he's a sinner. It's the only time he uses me. Unlike the Pharisee, who kept saying "I, I, I" over and over again. care for merciful is really interesting. It means to expiate or make propitiation for, or to atone for one's sin. He's asking God to provide a way for him to become righteous in His sight. And he knows he needs a sacrifice that God would have to. 18:14 says, "I tell you, Jesus says, "This man went to his house justifying rather than the other, where everyone who exalts himself will be humble. And I tell you, this man went to his house justifying rather than the other one, where everyone who exalts himself will be humble, Well, he who humbles himself, himself So I tell you, Jesus exerts his authority. What he's about to say. Then he reverses things. We did from 18:10. the text collected first this time. So he gets to the real issue here, which is justification. Remember, this parable is about the kingdom and who gets in. People who are hearing this, we saw back in verse 9, those who trusted in themselves in righteousness. So Jesus now tells them who's righteous. He said, No, this happens instantaneously. No works or performance needed. Only the humble, contrite sinner pleads for mercy, God, pleads for God's mercy, and receives it fully right then at the moment. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. Those who trust in their own works will be humble. Self-exaltation leads to destruction. Who is the one who's righteous in God's view? since says the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The humble will receive God's gracious forgiveness, gain eternal glory with him. He started all this by saying that it's a parable about prayer how gives us the key to eternal life. So, how does one enter the eternal kingdom that's to come? light of what we just looked at, how does Jesus teach and treat the kingdom? God justifies, its atonement for sinful men through mercy, grace, based on one's acceptance of grace, humbling. True humbleness comes by recognizing the truth, who we are, comparing ourselves to it. others, ourselves. Yeah. right? Isaiah 57 15 says, "For this is what the high and exalted one lives forever. His name is Holy. It says, I dwell in a high and holy place. I also dwell with a contrary, lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly, revive the heart of the contrary. So Isaiah says there, God, yes, he dwells in a high and holy place far from us, but he also dwells in a humble, contrary well, it turns out that our parable's secondary purposes prayer is prayer. It's primarily about righteousness, true righteousness, not self righteousness. Righteousness that is imputed to us by the work of God in regeneration. God saves, His Holy Spirit dwells in those who don't exalt themselves, come to Him, humble, contrary. Jesus is the perfect example. Philippians 2 7 says, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So Jesus is the absolute epitome of humility. He's worshipped by angels. Lived in heaven, all eternity past. God controlled everything. It was there creation? Everything that has ever gone on, worshipped constantly. King of kings was born to a young woman in a stable, virgin, born in a little too small town of Bethlehem. You'll see that come up on Christmas season. It's so a little tiny, insignificant town. You will be raised in a modest home, son of a carpenter, be mocked and spit upon, and not rail against any of True humility is right there in the sinless. So what's your response to that parable this morning? Now, I'll bet it's certainly not Pharisees. Thank you, God, I'm not like that tax collector. But is it thank you, God, that I'm not like Pharisees? Father, we thank you today for the truths of the word. We thank you, Father, that you show us what real, true humility is. As we press on and follow you diligently, we to you, that we will learn to be as we, the way we should be, in Jesus' name.